This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, the Elite Eight is set in Indy. We'll break it down for you. I'll give you my thoughts on uh, this past weekend's action and which two teams I think will punch their ticket to the Final Four tonight. Is the NFL really, finally, going to 17 games in the regular season? Buster Oney, bus a bus, will have an opening day primer for us. And some rare uh, soccer talk on the show, but it's worth noting. Uh, the U.S. men's national team uh, flames out once again and fails to qualify for the Olympics. All that and more coming up in the next two hours of the Morning Rush. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off another essential work day and another essential work week. It's actually a short week. It's a holiday week. So there's a programming note right off the bat. No show on Friday. I will not be here. I do not work holidays. They're holidays for a reason. So four-day work week for me. Shamo. Several ways to get involved on the show. As always, hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or at Rush Tony C. Leave me a message on Facebook at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Taking your calls on the Rush Line, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance on this Monday morning, 301-759-2628. Several ways to get involved. Want to get your thoughts on this weekend's hoops action. How does your bracket look? Hopefully it looks better than mine because mine is an absolute mess. Has been for a while, actually. And don't forget about our podcast page on the free Podbean app where we upload every show every day, minus commercials, just for you. What do I have, by the way? Did I check? Hold on. I checked earlier. Going back to when I originally broke down all of the games when the tournament started. I have four of the Elite Eight picked correctly. Well, it's not bad. It's a, it's 50-50, right? Now, after that, I got problems. <laughs> because three of the four teams I had in the Final Four, they're no longer around. So it's only going to get worse from here. It's all downhill uh, from here as far as my bracket goes. Of course, when Illinois was, you know, bounced in the second round, I was done anyway. But we'll get more into all these games uh, in just a bit. But first, let's rock around the region. I want to rock! And we'll start in college basketball, where West Virginia's Taz Sherman announced yesterday he was making himself eligible for the NBA draft, but he left the door open for a return to school. Uh, Sherman averaged 13.4 points a game this season, third best on the team. Now, it's worth noting he is a senior. And you might ask yourself, well, of course, since he's a senior, he'll, you know, 
make himself eligible for the draft. But wait. Remember, everybody has an extra year of eligibility because of the pandemic. So if he chooses because he didn't hire an agent, he can test the NBA waters, see where he stands, and then come back for that extra year, which I think is more likely than not. Sean McNeil, remember, put his name into the draft last week. He, too, will test. He's only a junior, though. So you have two Mountaineers uh, dipping their toes in the NBA draft waters. And I expect both (laughs) to be back in Morgantown next season. In the NHL, yesterday at the Capitals, man, they stayed red hot against the Rangers. Back into the corner, far wing. Capitals starting to heat up and get some chances here in this second period. Seven and a half to go. A shot from Ovechkin. He scores. Low on the left side. Hop through the pads. It's two. Nothing. Washington. John Walton, the call on the Capitals radio network. Caps jumped out to a 5-1 lead. Held on to win 5-4 because New York scored four times in the third period. Tom Wilson had two goals and TJ Oshie collected three points for the Caps who I said, red hot, they have won 10 of their last 11 games. Tonight, the Penguins, they're playing pretty well. They wrap up their five-game homestand against the Islanders. Well, not all five have been against the Islanders, just the last two. Uh, Pens beat the Isles on Saturday, 6-3. In the spring training action, the Nationals broke a a 3-3 tie with eight runs in the eighth inning to beat the Cardinals 11-3. Ryan Zimmerman continues. Uh, Speaking of red hot, he homered, singled, and drove in two. Uh, Victor Robles had three hits for Washington. And the Pirates beat the Orioles 2-1. Adam Frazier had two hits and an RBI for the Bucs. Today, the Nats host the Astros, the Bucs host the Twins, and the O's host the Rays, all 105 starts. And tonight in the NBA, the Wizards are hosting the Pacers. And that is your Rock Around the Region uh, brought to you by the Kappa Rally Group. Boy, we're heading down the home stretch, right? Spring training. A couple days left. A couple days left. And then teams depart. And we kick off the season Thursday. Regular season, baby. Major League Baseball. And don't forget, uh, this very station, your home for the Washington Nationals. And we'll have that season opener for you on Thursday right Later in the show, second hour, 8 o'clock hour, uh, Buster Olney was on uh, game night yesterday. And he has uh, kind of a primer, kind of a setup, you know, a few days early. You know, his takeaways from spring training, what he's looking forward to most about this regular season. Kind of a, you know, a little preview. So, that, again, that comes up in the uh, the 8 o'clock hour. So we're going to start off where you would expect us to start off, in college hoops. After this weekend's action, the Elite Eight is set in Indianapolis. We had four games Saturday, four more yesterday. And before we get to yesterday's games, I want to touch on a few things from Saturday. Sat here Friday. And I picked Syracuse to beat Houston. If you would have told me on Friday 
that Houston was going to score just 62 points, I would have doubled down on my Syracuse pick. However, <laughs> while I gave a lot of love to uh, Jim Beheim's 2-3 zone, I severely underestimated how good a Houston's man-to-man defense is. I mean, holy smokes, did they get after it. Just 46 points for Syracuse in that game. They made just, I had to double check this. When I heard it, I didn't believe it. They made just 14 shots of the entire game. 14. They were 14 of 50 from the field. That's only 28%. Just 5 for 23 from three-point range. Cougars, they contest everything. Every shot, very impressive. The 46 points, lowest total ever for a Syracuse team in the NCAA tournament. Previous low was 51 against Princeton back in 1992. Just a dominating defensive effort for Houston in that game. And I'm sure it didn't hurt many Mountaineer fans' feelings to see Syracuse and Buddy Bayham get bounced. I'm, I'm fairly certain that was cause for celebration. And now we get Houston taking on Oregon State, who eliminated Sister Jean and Loyola Chicago on Saturday. And Oregon State has been doing it with defense so far this tournament. They're allowing just 61 points a game through three games. Houston allowing just 54 a game. Whatever the under is in tonight's game, run to the window, don't walk, run and take the under. The way Oregon State is playing D, after seeing what Houston can do, I don't see many points being scored uh, in tonight's game. Another thing, another takeaway from Saturday is Baylor really proved something to me when they beat Villanova. And it proved to me that they are much more than just a three-point shooting team. Because that was their calling card, right? That's all we talked about all season long. I mean, I mean, they came into the tournament as the nation's best three-point shooting team at 41.5%. But they were absolutely horrible from three-point range on Saturday. They made, and this is the nation's best three-point shooting. They made three. They made three of 19 three-point shots. But, and here's a the kicker, they still found a way to win. By 11. They shot 53% in the second half and made just one three. Now, look, I've said on this show time and time again that a lot of teams in college ball will live and die by the three. That's just the way the game's going, right? We talk about Baylor. We talk about Alabama. Other teams, it's either layup or three-pointer. If you're off from long range, chances are you're done. The fact that Baylor did not die after that dismal shooting performance says a lot about them as a team as a whole. 
So I was very impressed with that win. And then there's Arkansas, who Baylor will take on in the Elite Eight. Arkansas back in the region final for the first time since their Nolan Richardson 40 minutes of hell days, right? First time back in the Elite Eight in 26 years. They had to rally again to beat Oral Roberts by a bucket. Now, we sat there and we broke this game down on Friday, in case you missed it. And we said that rebounding was going to be a definite key in that game. Because Oral Roberts had beaten Ohio State, had beaten Florida, despite getting out-rebounded by a combined 30 in those games. 30. Arkansas, in that game, had 18 offensive rebounds. That led to 18 second-chance points. And they had 11 more rebounds overall. The difference, one of the differences, was on the glass. Oral Roberts got away with it against Ohio State, got away with it against Florida, couldn't get away with it against Arkansas. And the Razorbacks kind of living on the edge here just a bit. They have they have rallied from double-digit deficits in every game this tournament. They trailed uh, Colgate in the first round by 14. Then they trailed, who did they beat? Uh, did, uh, Texas Tech by, I think, 10. And they trailed Oral Roberts by 12. And they came back and won every single one of them. I'm telling you right now, you do it against Baylor tonight, you're not coming back. You fall behind 12, 14 points to Baylor, season's over. Arkansas cannot afford to get off to a a slow start against the Bears. So that was just some of my takeaways from Saturday. Which leads me to yesterday's game. And the first game of yesterday, eh, it's kind of a snooze fest. And this game is officially in the books. Gonzaga moves to 29-0, and the Gonzaga Bulldogs on their way to the Elite Eight. Gonzaga 83, Creighton 65. Gonzaga's pursuit of perfection remains intact. The call on the Westwood 1 NCAA Network. Gonzaga just cruised past the 5C to Creighton by 18 points. Game was never really close. I mean, Zags put four of their five starters in double figures. Now they are halfway, halfway home to becoming the first unbeaten champion in 45 years. And as I said, they were, just, they were absolutely dominant. They shot just under 60% from the floor. It's like 59.6%. They scored 50 points in the paint, assisted on 23 buckets. They led by 10 at the half and led by as many as 27 in the second half. Here's Zags head coach Mark Few. I think we've had some excellent, I mean, off the chart uh, performances and, 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 and some terrific halves. And I thought we had a good, you know, once we settled in at the end of the first half tonight and then the, the start of the second half, I thought we really 
did a nice job. I, I think a couple things they do really well is they, they really, really absorb and, and take the scouting reports to hand, do a great job with their attention to detail for the most part. And they've grown in that area. You know, I think Jalen's really grown. Uh, and then, you know, hey, we got big wings and big guards, big, strong, aggressive guards like Jalen and Ann Andrew are the same. So we can switch a lot. Now, this is Gonzaga's fourth trip to the Elite Eight in the last six years. However, only made it to the Final Four just once. And that was back in 2017. They lost to, I forget who was, North Carolina in the championship game. So, here's the question. Why will this season be any different for the Zags? They've been close before, and they're close again. So why will now why, why would it be different? Jim Meehan, who is the Gonzaga beat writer for the Spokesman Review, says the Zags, the outcome might be different because Mark Few is different. I think over the years, Mark has, has uh, mellowed a little bit. Uh, he was talking about it last week when they went from winning the first game to the round of 32 game. You just have that quick turnaround. And in the old days, he would, you know, lock him up in film session for hours and probably double practice and <laughs> try to do as much as he can. Nowadays, he, he talks more about the mental part of it, about getting them rest, getting them off their feet, and just getting them dialed into a scouting report more than, you know, going through a physical practice. So I think in that sense, he's, he's kind of, uh, you know, changed his tactics as tournaments go along. They've obviously had success with that. Uh, and I think, his, the way he relates to the players, uh, I think he has a lot more fun with the guys. I think he enjoys being around them. They have uh, a lot of levity with, you know, Drew, Timmy's uh, Fu Man Drew mustache that uh, I think that keeps them light. But maybe some of those things have helped them deal with the pressure uh, of staying undefeated and pursuing, pursuing this undefeated season. So, Zags are now 29-0, and and I swear they're getting better as the tournament goes on. Yesterday, again, no contest. The next obstacle between them and their unbeaten season will come from the Pac-12. Feeding it to Evan Mobley. Gets free. Mobley to the rim and a two-hand poster. Evan Mobley just hanging on the wall as he drove in and posterized Frank Kepnall. My goodness. The call the call in the West won. NCAA Network, USC, the sixth seed in the West region, dusted off Pac-12 foe Oregon, 82-68. The Trojans advanced to just their third Elite Eight in school history and first in 20 years. UNC, or not UNC, UNC is nowhere near the tournament. USC, just like Gonzaga, lights out from the field, shooting 57% including 10 of 17 from three-point range. USC head coach Andy Enfield uh, stating the obvious after the game. Uh, it's a huge win for the program. We haven't even thought about that, but I did make a statement that this is the second elite in the last 60 years for USC basketball. This is a huge win for our program. Uh, I, I think uh, as we built this thing uh, with Jason Hart, associate head coach, and Chris Capco and Curtis Schultz, they've been with me all eight years uh, we, we just had a, a we have a terrific uh, co- assistant coaching staff that have, have tried to build pro- build teams year after year and and, uh, and develop players. And I'm so proud of our coaches, 
Uh, I'm only as good as a head coach as my staff and, of course, our players. So now the question is, does USC, with the big fella in the middle, seven-footer Evan Mobley, his brother Isaiah on the perimeter, does USC have what it takes to do what nobody has been able to do this season, and that's beat Gonzaga? And how do they do it? Well, actually, I guess that's two questions. Here's ESPN analyst LaFonso Ellis. Well, USC is going to have to keep Gonzaga out of their transition game, which means they're going to have to take care of the basketball and take quality shots. This is a Gonzaga team that loves to push it in transition. Jalen Suggs on the push trying to get to the rim. And if he can't get there, he's always trying to find Corey Kispert out at the three-point line who can absolutely knock it down. And they're going to have to really do a nice job of challenging shots on the interior, particularly with Drew Timmy. You talk about a team tonight that scored 50 of their 83 points in the paint. Can they shoot it from three? Sure. 37% from three, 30th in the country in that area. But you've got to slow them down the paint, get back, get that 2-3 zone set up, and challenge them on the interior and make them become a jump shooting team. Do you remember way back near the beginning of the season, you remember when Gonzaga played West Virginia back when the Mountaineers still had Oscar Shibway and Derek Culver? You remember in that, especially in the first half of that game, although Gonzaga eventually won the game, but do you remember how it seemed like they were intimidated, Gonzaga, by the interior defense of West Virginia? Can you remember that? I do. We talked about it on the show. That's what USC needs tomorrow. Drew Timmy and those guys who have been great this season, they wanted nothing to do with Culver and Shibway in the paint, particularly in the first half of that game. USC is going to need something very, very similar if they want any chance. Be intimidating, protect the paint, protect the rim, force Gonzaga to beat you from the outside. Which they can do. But as I mentioned, Zags had 50 points in the paint against Creighton. If that happens tomorrow, USC is as good as done before the game even starts. So, Trojans and Zags, first game tomorrow at 7.15. Catch the game right here on Cumberland's ESPN Radio. The second game of tomorrow night will feature the only Big Ten team left in the tournament. And we'll talk about that next. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberlands, ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Breaking down yesterday's action in the Sweet 16. I got to admit, off the bat, before we uh, move on here, and I say this in... This is kind of funky. This is kind of... I got extremely lightheaded during the break. I can't explain why. But I'm just sitting here and just like things got a little bit wonky, right? I say that just so you know. Like if all of a sudden I don't say anything for like 15 seconds or so, you might want to call somebody. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Just throwing it out there. I think I am oxygen-deprived to my brain. 
Another tough, tough night's sleep last night. As I've said on this show several times, uh, it's hard for me to get back on my schedule after the weekend. Because I stay up a little bit longer on the weekend, I sleep a little more on the weekend, and it's hard for me to get to bed at a decent hour on Sunday nights to get up to come in today. So maybe it's a little bit, you know, a little sleep drunk right now. Anyway. Where was I? Oh, yes, right. College Hoops. All right. Uh, so we talked about Gonzaga and USC. They're going to meet in the West Region Final. All right. Two of the four games yesterday. Uh, let's get to the other two games. And for the 14th time in Michigan school history, the Wolverines will play in the Elite Eight, 76 58. State to advance to the round of eight. The call once again on the Westwood One NCAA Network. Wolverine simply just dominating Florida State 76 to 58. Seminoles were the last ACC team left in the tournament. And I look, I had this game completely wrong when I picked it on Friday. I thought FSU's speed, length, Remember, they didn't have a single starter shorter than 6'5". I guess a better way to say it was all their starters were 6'5 or taller. I thought that would give Michigan fits, especially again without Isaiah Livers, and I was just dead wrong. Game was never really close. I mean, it really wasn't. FSU turned the ball over 10 times in the first half which led to 16 Michigan points. Florida State didn't hit a single three-pointer in the first half. Their first three didn't come until like 24 minutes into the game, or I guess 16 minutes left in the game. They only made five threes for the whole game. First time this season, they were held under 60 points. FSU head coach Leonard Hamilton on what went wrong for his Seminoles or, I guess, uh, what what went right for Michigan. And they executed and made plays right there toward the end. That's what a good team will do. That, there's no doubt that uh, this team is, from an execution standpoint, from a decision statement standpoint, they are playing to who they are. Uh, I said prior to the game that the team that would win this game would be the team who was the best version of who they were, and I think they were – the best version of Michigan tonight. And uh, even though I thought we could have played a little better, I'm not real sure that uh, Michigan didn't have a lot to do with our inability to play as well as, as we have had, as we have played sometime during the course of the year. If Michigan plays as well as they played today in terms of their focus and their execution and their spacing and the, the, the way they were connected today. I mean, they were, they, they were almost flawless in uh, their execution. They know how to play to each other. And um, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me at all for them to be standing there on, on, on Monday night with their finger up saying they're number one. Uh, Michigan dominated. Down low. Of course, they had the big seven-footer, uh, Hunter Dickinson, the math product. They outscored FSU 50-28 to 28 in the paint. Their first 30 points of the second half all came from close range. 
Here's ESPN's Jay Billis. Michigan's win over Florida State to get to the Elite Eight was really impressive. First, Michigan owned the tempo. They were able to slow Florida State down. They kept the Seminoles out of transition. They also took advantage of Florida State's turnovers in the first half. They had double-digit turnovers, and that's been a problem for Florida State really over the last three weeks where they turned the ball over 18 times against North Carolina, 25 times against Georgia Tech, and then they turned it over 14 times uh, against a, a more of a containment defense in Michigan. But Michigan got contributions from everyone, and they took advantage of Florida State switching. Hunter Dickinson would come out and set high ball screens. They were almost ghost screens. He never made contact. Then he would just roll a, a guard down into the post. And then whenever a catch was made by Michigan, usually by Franz Wagner, it would be a catch on the run. Eli Brooks, a catch on the run. And they would be able to turn the corner, get downhill, bring help, and then they're able to drop it off. It was just a, a, a clinic on the offensive end. And Michigan shot 49% for the game. They limited Florida State's three-point attack, five for 20 for the Seminoles. It was a rough night for Florida State. But how about the contribution of Franz Wagner? He had 13 points, 10 rebounds, five assists. And Brandon Johns, who's really filling in, for the injured Isaiah Livers was terrific with 14 points, six rebounds, a couple of big steals. Michigan's in the Elite Eight without Isaiah Livers. They can win again. Now you just heard Jay mention Franz Wagner, 13, 10, and 5. A big reason why they're moving on. Daniel Dash, who covers Michigan hoops for SB Nation, says that uh, Wagner changed the way he played this season, which changed Michigan's offense. A lot of what changed was Franz Wagner stepping up and becoming more of a playmaker than anything else. Uh, Franz Wagner, a six foot ten sophomore from Berlin, Germany, if the last name sounds familiar, uh, it's because Wolverine fans treasure Mo Wagner. Uh, he was the star of the 2018 national runner-up team. Uh, but Franz Wagner operating out of a ball screen has completely transformed Michigan's offense throughout this year. Last year, the freshman, he was really a spot-up three-point shooter. They kind of stashed him in the corner. Uh, he broke his wrist early in the season. That made it really hard for him to get going. But over the quarantine, uh, he actually lived with Mo Wagner in Washington, D.C., uh, and the brothers trained together, uh, particularly on their ball handling. And I think that that's made a really big difference this year for Franz because they put him in the ball screen, and being six foot ten, you can see over a lot of guys, see a lot of passing angles. And I, I think that he's come so far in that respect, and it opened so many doors for Michigan's offense, and I think that's really what allowed them to explode in tonight's second half. So the Wolverines move on to the Elite Eight for the first time since 2018, where they will face, and we save the best game for last. Inbounds pass to Singleton. Singleton is going to dribble it out, and it is over. For the first time since 2008, the UCLA Bruins are in the Elite Eight. The Bruins knock off Alabama, 88-78 the final score, and UCLA will play on. The call on the Westwood One NCAA Network, UCLA, the 11th seed in the East region. The same UCLA team that needed to win a play-in game just to get into the field of 64 is on to the Elite Eight, <laughs> which... I can't get over that. They upset the two-seed Alabama in overtime. Bama, they just needed a buzzer-beating three by Alex Reese just to force OT 
and then UCLA just dominated the extra session. Scored the first five points of overtime and then never looked back. Cruised to the 10-point win. Going back to LaFonso Ellis, who says it's always important to get the big mo early in overtime. Yeah, it's important in overtime that you seize the tone of the game early. And they did a great job at UCLA. They got the basketball to Jaime Jaquez. He was able to drive it hard to the baseline, draw help, and then he kicked it across the floor. And they were able to knock down a three. Anytime you can be aggressive that way, attacking the basket and getting inside out three, that sets the table for it. I thought Alabama settled for too many threes in overtime. They had already had UCLA in the bonus. They should have driven that basketball to the basket as often as they could to try to either score a layup or get to the foul line. Missed opportunities for Alabama all night long. Missed. They were 11 of 25 from the free throw line as well. What a win for the Bruins. Now, the end of regulation was absolutely just bonkers. UCLA took a one-point lead. It was a 63-62 with 14 seconds left. Uh, Cody Riley made a layup. A shot, in my opinion, that never should have counted because the officials missed a charge on Campbell, who made the pass to Riley. It was a terrible non-call when you consider how charges have been called so far in this tournament. Because I even tweeted out, Earlier in the day, after a call I saw in the Florida State-Michigan game, apparently, you no longer have to be set to draw a charge in college basketball. All you got to do is slip under a player, put your hands up, and fall backwards. Some of the charge calls in this tournament have been absolutely brutal. Used to be a time that you had to be set for a little while to draw a charge. Like, I don't know what changed. It was explained to me a while ago by, by uh, an official. And I don't think this is officially in the rule book. But I asked him, this is a while ago, this is a couple years ago. I said, how long does a defender have to be set in order to draw a charge? And the way he explained it to me is – he has to be set long enough to allow the offensive player to go around it or to avoid it. You know, do a Euro step or a spin move or a jump stop. Right? If he doesn't allow the offensive player to avoid the charge, give him the opportunity to avoid it, then he's not set long enough. That is apparently completely out the window in the college game. In most games, actually. It seems like all you have to do is just beat the guy to the spot. It doesn't matter how long you're set. And the charge calls that I was complaining about in that Florida State-Michigan game, really the whole tournament, the same exact call that was ignored late in that UCLA-Bama game. That is not the time to swallow the whistle. I am a firm believer of if it's a foul in the first minute of the game, it's a foul in the last minute. And that definitely applied yesterday because UCLA drew two charges in the first three minutes of the game. So you think, all right, that's the way this game's going to be called. Right? Two charges in the beginning of the game. It's got to be a charge into the, the game. Apparently, not the case. And you see it time and time again. You see officials, referees swallow the whistle in crunch time. They don't want to be the ones to 
influence or determine the outcome of the game. Never really realizing that by not blowing the whistle, <laughs> you're still influencing and determining part of the outcome. You're partly, not completely, partly determining the outcome of the game. And I'm not even so sure that this play in particular was a charge by the letter of the rule book. But based on what we've seen in the tournament so far, that was a charge. Alabama should have, they should have gotten the ball back and maintained their one point lead. Instead, the lay in counts and UCLA has the lead. Now, that being said, that's not the only reason Alabama lost. They were atrocious from the foul line. And you heard LaFonso Ellis say it, 11 for 25 in the game, which is obviously crucial in a game that goes to overtime. Herb Jones, had he missed two foul shots with 14 seconds left. That would have put Alabama back up by one, and he missed them both. So, yeah, we can look at the charge. And who knows what happens after that. But, man, you can't go 11 for 25 from the free throw line. Not in that game. Not with a chance to go to the Elite Eight. So I will put some uh, blame on the officials for swallowing the whistle on that charge. A bigger portion of the blame goes to Alabama and their inability to shoot free throws with the game on the line. So as it stands, they go to overtime. UCLA, like I said, they get the first five points of OT, and they roll from there. Here's uh, Bruins head coach Mick Cronin. I don't know if this is a fact, but we got to be the only team left out here with no seniors. Um, You know, there's many times we could have packed it in, but I told them, you know, they've been putting up with me for two years now, trying to beat into them competitive spirit and toughness. Because, you know, when you combine that with talent, you have a chance to have, you know, to do great things. And, uh, you know, they, they've they've allowed me to do it, and you're seeing the results of it right now. So there it is. The Elite Eight is set. Two games tonight, two games tomorrow. And remember, you can catch all the games right here on this very station. Uh, coverage begins at, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 7 o'clock, both nights. Early game tonight. Oregon State-Houston, late game Arkansas-Baylor, a throwback to the old Southwest Conference days. And then tomorrow, the other two games, uh, UNC-Gonzaga. I'm sorry, I keep on saying UNC. USC-Gonzaga and then UCLA and Michigan. And here's the thing that really sticks out, right? I didn't see it coming. You didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. If they did, if they say they did, they're lying. The Pac-12 has three teams in the Elite Eight. The conference that I ragged on more than once heading into the tournament, the conference that I called soft, has three teams left. That's the first time that's happened since 2001. They had Arizona, Stanford, and USC. Uh, They made the region finals. The Pac-12, in this tournament, remember, we talked all about the Big Ten, right? Big Ten and the Big 12. They are the two best conferences. 
Big 10 got nine teams in. Big 12 got seven teams in. Pac-12 is 12-2 this tournament. That's the third most wins in one NCAA tournament in Pac-12 history. The record's 13. And not only have they won 12 games so far, they've won 10 of the 12 by double digits. They played 17 games so far total, which is the second most in Pac-12 history. They have eight wins over power conference opponents. Six wins over AP top 25 teams. They've pulled five upsets. Most of them, of course, have come from UCLA and Oregon State. At 12-2 overall, entering the Elite Eight, the the Pac-12 is tied for the best record of any conference with five or more teams since the field expanded in 1985. This year's Pac-12 is 12-2. In 1985, the ACC went 12-2. And, And of course, as I just said, 85 was the first year they expanded to 64 teams. In 2001, the last time they had three teams in the Elite Eight, the Pac-12 was 11-2. 1992, Big Ten was 11-2. 1987, the Big East was 11-2. Never... (laughs) In my wildest imagination, would I have thought the Pac-12 would have three teams in the Elite Eight? It's incredible. And two of them are double-digit seeds. This is, if I'm not mistaken, I thought I had it down here somewhere. This is the first time ever that two teams seated 11th or lower make the Elite Eight. UCLA is an 11th seed, Oregon State the 12th seed. And I keep on waiting for them to trip up. I keep on picking against them. I thought UCLA had no chance against Alabama. As a matter of fact, I think my words Friday were, Alabama's going to blow them out. Because even though UCLA made it that far, I mean, they knocked off a Michigan State team That, let's face it, wasn't your normal Michigan State team in that first four game. Then they beat a highly overseeded and overrated BYU team. Then they beat a 14 seed in Abilene Christian. So I thought, there's no way. There's no way UCLA has a chance against Alabama. Shows you how much I know. Then you got Oregon State. I mean, they make for great stories. Don't get me wrong. Oregon State, if they didn't win the Pac-12 tournament, they wouldn't even been in the big tournament. And they're just riding that wave. They knock off Tennessee. They knock off Oklahoma State. Then they knock off Loyola Chicago. About the only one that's not a surprise is USC, because I actually had them getting... Actually, I had him going to the Sweet 16. I had him losing to Iowa in the Sweet 16. USC is the only team that is not really that surprising to me out of the Pac-12. Everything else, I mean, who knew? If you thoughtfully, okay, if you put thought into it and you thoughtfully, consciously 
without you know guesswork, if you had UCLA and Oregon State both in the Elite Eight, buy a ticket, hop on a plane, fly to Vegas, and bet everything. Seriously. I don't know how you figured it out. Buy a lottery ticket today, maybe two. I don't know of anybody who fancies themselves as, you know, knowledgeable in college hoops would have had those two teams reaching the Elite Eight. But here we are. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to pick against them again. i got to be right sooner or later. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they'll meet in the finals. (laughs) Wouldn't that be something? Then one of them definitely has to lose. All right, our number one in the books. When we come back, we'll switch gears, some NFL talk, going to a 17-game regular season. We'll hear from Buster Olney, little uh, Major League Baseball preview. All that coming up next. Stick around. Come on DSPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Several ways to get involved on the show. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or at Rush Tony C on Facebook at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Feel free to drop me a line whenever. You got a question, comment, opinion? Or you can give me a call, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial a dance. Shamo. 301-759-2628. Or a podcast page. Check it out on the free Podbean app if you missed uh, any show or any portion of the show. We upload every show every day, minus commercial. So if you missed the first hour, it was all NCAA hoop stock. The Elite Eight is set after uh, this weekend's Sweet 16 action. Broke down every single game. Gave you my thoughts, my analysis, my terrible picks. So check it out on the uh, Podbean app. Want to know how your bracket is doing? How many teams you still have alive? I have, uh, what I say, four of the eight? Something like that? Yeah. So when I picked all the games when the tournament started, I had Gonzaga, Michigan on the left side of the bracket. And I had Baylor and Arkansas, believe it or not, in the South Region Final. I had nothing right in the Midwest. So I have four of the eight. After that, it gets really bad because I only have one team left in the Final Four. That's Baylor. I had Iowa and Alabama in one Final Four. And I had Baylor and Illinois in the other. I had Illinois winning the whole thing. So, there you go. That's how much that's worth. How's your bracket doing? Give me a call, 301-759-2628. All right, uh, let's one final time today rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And we will stay in college basketball, where West Virginia's Taz Sherman announced yesterday uh, he was making himself eligible for the NBA draft, but he did leave the door open for a return to school. Sherman averaged 13.4 points a game this season, third best on the Mountaineers squad. Now, he's a senior, which, you know, you might ask, well, if he's a senior, of course he's entering the NBA draft because he's graduating. Not so fast. Remember, everybody has an extra year of eligibility because of the pandemic. So he can test the NBA waters. If he doesn't quite like what he hears, 
evaluations and whatnot, then he can go back to Morgantown for that extra year. He is the second player within about a week's time to uh, make themselves eligible. Sean McNeil, who's only a junior, did uh, did so last week. I look for both of them to be back in Morgantown next year. On the ice Sunday, the Capitals stayed red hot against the Rangers. Back into the corner, far wing. Capitals starting to heat up and get some chances here in this second period. Seven and a half to go. A shot from Ovechkin. He scores! Low on the left side. Hops through the pads. It's 2-0 Washington. John Walton, the call on the Capitals radio network. Caps jumped out to a 5-1 lead, held on to win 5-4 because New York scored four times in the third period. Tom Wilson had two goals, and T.J. Oshie collected three points for the Caps, who have won 10 of their last 11 games. Tonight, the Penguins wrap up their five-game homestand when they host the Islanders. Uh, Pens beat the Isles on Saturday, 6-3. In spring training action, the Nationals broke a tie late with eight runs in the eighth inning to beat the Cardinals 11-3. Ryan Zimmerman, who has been just mashing it this spring, homered, singled, and drove in two. Uh, Victor Robles had three hits for Washington. You see uh, where the Nats, was it on Saturday? What is today? Yeah. They sent uh, Carter Keyboom down to the minors. Right, I mean, this is a guy who was projected to be the starter at third base. Just really struck. He struggled last year. I think he hit like 181. Not doing very well in the spring, so Nationals uh, sent Keyboom down uh, to the minors. Yesterday, the Pirates beat the Orioles 2-1. Adam Frazier had two hits and an RBI for the Bucks. Today, the uh, Nats host the Astros. Bucks host the Twins. And the O's host the Rays. All 105 starts. And tonight in the NBA, the Wizards are hosting the Pacers. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporale Group. So we only have a few days left in spring training. Teams will wrap things up. Some teams today, some tomorrow. Then they'll all disperse. And they will get ready for (laughs) opening day, which is Thursday. A few short days away, April Fool's Day, right? Hope, what's the old saying? Hope springs eternal. Like everybody thinks their team has a shot until, you know, season actually starts. Then you have, you know, guys like us, you know, Pirates fans and Orioles fans who after about a month realize not a shot, right? Not a chance. But still, it's fun to dream. Yesterday on ESPN game night, Buster Olney, old bus a bus. Longtime MLB insider was on with Aaron Goldhammer and Courtney Cronin to give kind of a, uh, I don't know, an early, a preseason primer to get you ready for opening day on Thursday. So here is Buster Bus, Buster, Buster Only on game night yesterday. Just a couple days away from opening day, what's the spring training storyline that you've been following most closely? Shohei Otani, uh, seemingly on the verge of realizing all the greatness that everyone expected for him when he signed with the Angels. Uh, You know, of course, he's dealt with a lot of injuries, had Tommy John surgery, and this spring, under a new front office regime, they have taken the bubble wrap off. They basically told him, look, just go and be a baseball player 
He put on 15 pounds working out during the offseason, and this spring he has looked phenomenal. He's been killing the ball, <laughs> hit the plate. Uh, he's been throwing really hard. His command is off. But, you know, I talked to Mike Trout a couple weeks ago and asked him, uh, based on what he's seen this spring, you know, what is a fully healthy uh, Shohei Otani capable of? And he didn't hesitate. He said 10-plus wins and 30-plus home runs. He will be a great story all year. 14 strikeouts across eight innings pitched uh, on the mound, 571 batting average, five home runs, eight RBIs. It's no slouch, even though it is spring training, like you mentioned. Another big storyline we were talking about a little bit ago at this point last year were the Astros and the fact that we wouldn't see A.J. Hinch Hinch and Alex Cora, the two managers that were suspended for a year for their involvement in the sign-stealing scandal, a part of baseball last year. But they're back as MLB managers. Cora returning to the Red Sox. A.J. Hinch is on a new team with the Tigers. How has that been received this year throughout Major League Baseball? Well, it's funny, Courtney, when, when you know, those guys were first candidates, the, the response on, uh, among angry fans on social media were basically they shouldn't be allowed to work again. Among front office people, they were like, well, yeah, it's only a matter of time because they're two of the best managers. I've always thought of Alex as um, you know, since he became the Red Sox manager as being the best manager in the game. AJ's terrific as well. Um, in fact, it surprises me that it took so long for the Red Sox to actually formalize the return of Alex Cora. And by all accounts, AJ Hinch has, has really, uh, you know, changed the, the the trajectory. I think in spring training of the Tigers, changed the expectations and, and gotten them moving forward. Buster, what do you think the impact will be on the game to have fans back in the stands starting on Thursday? Huge. I, I you know, count me among the people who didn't realize. Uh, just how uh, instrumental fans in the ballpark were to what players did on the field. You know, after seeing so many games last year, when you saw fielders forget how many outs there were constantly, uh, where the players just didn't seem engaged. You know, guys like Javier Baez just seemed like lost. And then you think about it, imagine like a Broadway actor, you know, doing a, a play in his living room with nobody there versus actually being on stage. That's what the difference was last year. We've been doing these Zoom calls with major leaguers uh, across the spectrum this spring and have asked them about that, and every person we've talked to basically said, boy, I can't wait. Because the fans have, have you know, brought adrenaline back to the ballpark and needed adrenaline for the players. Francisco Lindor says he wants to change New York to a Mets town talks of a contract extension have surfaced for quite some time now. Do you think that they're able to get it done before opening day? I do, uh, because there's so much at stake for Steve Cohen, the, the new Mets owner. I think that Francisco Lindor, in this case, has the leverage. Uh, and I think as long as the first number in the Mets offer starts with a three, you know, $300 million plus, it's hard to imagine them not pushing it across the finish line. And from all indications, the Mets in these talks are willing to go, you know, a three-plus. Um, and Because you know, they looked at Lindor, even though there are a lot of free agent shortstops uh, potentially in the fall, I think they looked at Lindor as not only being a, a perfect player for what they need, a strong defensive shortstop, a switch hitter, somebody who gets for power, can run, but also has the personality to play in New York, and he's everything he's done this spring has shown that. You know, we saw uh, the other day that Steve Cohen basically said, 
that he was going to you know, take to social media to find out what fans wanted to offer Lindor. I don't think he would have done that if he wasn't confident they would get it done. Buster, a couple years ago, I couldn't name you a San Diego Padre. Now they're one of the most star-laden teams in all of sports. What do you expect from the Padres this season? Aaron, that they'll be the one team in the National League that uh, I, I think you know has a chance to unseat the, the Dodgers as National League champions. Um, and look, when you look at how great the Dodgers are, to me, you know, they have a chance to be the first team since the 98-2000 Yankees to win back-to-back titles. But San Diego's loaded, and they also have you know, that X factor, uh, being a division rival, um, almost like the little brother coming for the big brother's lunch. And, you know, last year when you watched the games between the Dodgers and the Padres, they were tense. Uh, you know, there was a lot of emotion in them. And, and you know, I think historically you'd look at Red Sox-Yankees as being the best rivalry, uh, Dodgers-Giants, Cardinals-Cubs. But this year the must-watch games are going to be Padres and Dodgers. Um, I, I still think the Dodgers, because their depth, have a distinct advantage. But with Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado and incredible – uh, rotation that's been bolstered by these offseason moves for the likes of Blake Snell and you Darvish. Padres are pretty dangerous. The Padres spending like it is going out of style. The aforementioned New York Yankees, they've come up short over and over again in the postseason throughout the last decade. Now that we're on the cusp of 2021, what do you think gets them over the hump this year? It's hard to say at this moment because I don't think that the Yankees that start the regular season are going to be what they're uh, what we'll see after the trade deadline. It's it's been an interesting winter because you know historically the the Red Sox Yankee uh, arms race always drove American League teams. Well, this past winter, a lot of the action was done by National League teams, but you know the Yankees are still an excellent regular season team. They didn't make a lot of moves besides re-signing D.J. LeMahieu. Uh, and I do think that, you know, as fans come back into the stands, that Hal Steinbrenner, their owner, will give the okay to Brian Cashman to go out and be aggressive to augment the team during the course of the year. And I think they're going to be some aggressive sellers, you know, the Cubs, the Giants. And, and I bet you the, the Yankees are, are going to be right at the front of the line in the American League in terms of adding. ESPN MLB Insider, Buster only with us. Buster, you'll be able to get back to ballparks this year and call games in person. So what's the one ballpark food item you're most looking forward to eating again? Oh, a Dodger dog. You know, I grew up a huge Dodger fan. <laughs> and so every time I go there, I make a point of getting uh, a Dodger dog. That that, uh, that I'm, And it's pretty cool. Uh, that that's going to be there. I'll never forget when I went to the first game last year, uh, you had the Yankees and you had the Nationals. The thing that absolutely jumped out of me when I walked on the concourse was no smells of food. And all of those vending sites were all under plastic wrap. And this year they're all going to be open. It's going to be great. And it will be great. There you go, Buster Olney, who was on uh, game night with Aaron Goldhammer and Courtney Cronin. little preview little setup for opening day Thursday. That's a pretty bold prediction. Uh, Shohei Otani, 10 wins and 30 homers. Wouldn't that be something? I don't even know. Is every ballpark allowing fans this year? Or is it, I guess it depends on state to state, right? Like I don't know if PNC Park 
or Camden. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the uh, restrictions are there. I'm not going to bother. I would love to go to a game. And I'm one of those people where I would not, if somebody gave me a ticket, I would not be scared to go to a game. But I'm not, I'm not going through the hassle. I mean, I missed going to the ballpark last year. Man, did I ever. That's an entire season that I missed out on, right? Family loves going to the games. Love making a weekend of it. Sometimes we'll go see a couple games and just spend the entire weekend on uh, the North Shore up there in Pittsburgh. I missed it. And even if there are some fans allowed in PNC Park, I don't know if I want to go through the hassle of trying to secure a ticket. I don't know if I miss it that much. You know what I mean? I'll have to hold off until it's all just wide open. Until all this is, you know, in the rear view, and they say, all right, let's fill the stadium again, let's go. That's when I'll go back. I just don't want to go through the hassle of trying to get a ticket, getting one of the 2500 or 3000 or whatever. But it will be nice to have fans back in the stadiums. Just the little bit of fans that have been allowed back in NHL arenas, it's made a little bit of difference. You can hear, you know, the slight murmur of the crowd. You're going to hear when a goal scored. It's not all that fake noise and the fake crowd noise. The fans do add something to it. And you heard Buster say there that he didn't really realize how much fans add to the atmosphere, how much the players play off of that until there's nobody there, until you're playing in an empty ballpark, empty stadium, empty arena, whatever. Heck, I noticed the difference in our high school basketball games. Yeah, we have some people, parents, grandparents, household family members, but it's so you still got some noise, but it's just different. You can't pack the house. You, you don't have a ton of people there. You don't have big student sections. It makes a difference. Players feed off of that. They feed off the energy. There's an energy that fans give off, whether it be positive energy if you're the home team or negative energy if you're the road team. And it definitely has an effect. I mean, it's something that I've noticed. I'm sure everybody has noticed in the gym. But it'll be nice to have fans back in the stadiums for Major League Baseball. Again, when you're talking about a stadium that holds 30, 35, 40,000, whatever, is 3,000 going to make that much of a difference? No. But you'll still get some of that 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 ambiance, right? That chatter, that that murmur. You'll, you'll still get what well, we missed it so much last year. Now, Buster said that he wants, you know, a Dodger. Like, what's the one food he missed the most was a Dodger dog, right? It's like that's the first thing he's going to get. When he goes to Dodger Stadium, I can't wait. I'm, I'm a big nacho guy, right? I am. When I go to the ballpark, when I go to PNC Park, I gotta have, I gotta have a tall one, right? I gotta have a, a tall, cold one. Gotta have peanuts for whatever reason. Peanuts just taste taste better at the ballpark, and I gotta have nachos. I gotta, I gotta have a loaded nachos, just piled high with a million jalapenos. Cheese, salsa, messiness, dripping off the sides, 
that's what I uh, that that'll be my first thing. I guarantee it. That'll be my first go to. When I get back in PNC Park, probably won't be this year. Unless some miracle happens in the middle of the summertime and they let, you know, they let, they bust the gates wide open. Well, I, I can't I shudder to think about missing it a whole nother season. Having to go two full years without going to the ballpark. Ugh. Ah. But I'm making a beeline to the concession stand. Money will be no issue. <laughs> Money will not matter at that point. Give me eight beers, four nachos, and a bunch of peanuts. And it will be, after all this wait, delicious. Be the best nachos I ever had in my entire life. All right. Time for a break. News and weather coming up when we come back. The NFL could be going to a 17-game regular season. As, as you can imagine, some players not too happy about it. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. You know what I get to do today after I leave here? Uh, it's fun times for all. I get to head back to the DMV to renew my driver's license. Tried to a couple weeks ago, but I didn't have the proper documentation, even though the list stated that I did have the proper documentation. Uh, They just told me I didn't. So now I must go down and do it again because uh, my license expires tomorrow. (laughs) That's right. I have, what, less than 16 hours left in my 40s? Is that right? Wow. Now look, tomorrow comes, tomorrow goes. I'm not going to feel any different, unfortunately. I'm not going to look any different, unfortunately. It's a day, right? But there's something about when that odometer flips (laughs) to a zero, right? 50 is a big number. Just the fact that when I wake up tomorrow, I will be half a century old. Uh, It's a little bit jolting. Like I said, it's not going to change me any. Maybe I'll actually decide to get in better shape. Because things don't get any easier from this point on. But when you hit a, a, I guess, what is that? I guess it's a milestone, I suppose. It kind of forces you to take inventory of your life. Does it not? Because that's, that's what I found myself doing the past couple of days. As it's, it's gotten closer to closer to the big 5-0. It kind of forces you to look back and evaluate and kind of just take stock of, look, hey, there have been a lot of great things that have happened to me in 50 years, almost 50. Been a lot of crappy things too. That's life, right? But when you reach a birthday like this, you really you, you do a lot of 
retro, what's the word I'm looking for? Retrospection. You do a lot of just, you look you look back more than you look forward, right? So that's, that's what I've been doing here recently. Just kind of like, I don't want to in some cases, but it's just, you kind of have to. All the things that have happened, all the things that I've done to kind of lead me to this point. 50 years is a long time. Still young, but you know, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I'm not crusty yet. Still feel young. I don't feel 50. People tell me that I don't look 50. I look more like 60. <laughs> but it's just one of those marks, milestones that kind of just makes you reflect on things just a little bit. And we'll do some reflection tomorrow during the show as I'll kind of like take a trip down memory lane. A lot of things in sports have changed in my 50 years. I've seen a lot. I've experienced a lot. Sports have changed so much. Life has changed so much in 50 years. So we'll go through some of that tomorrow. 50. Nah. All right, let's go from 50 to 17, okay? Oh, to be 17 again. The NFL has played a 16-game regular season every year since 1978. That looks like it's about to change. NFL owners are expected to vote and approve sometime tomorrow or Wednesday to expand the regular season by one game. Some players, as you could imagine, not too happy about it. Here's ESPN's Mike Triplett. NFL owners are expected to formally approve expansion to a 17-game schedule this week during their virtual league meetings, but some players are still not happy about it, even though this has seemed inevitable since the two sides reached their latest collective bargaining agreement last year. Saints running back Alvin Kamara is one of the most vocal critics on social media Sunday, calling it dumb as hell, while Packers safety Adrian Amos lamented, we really let this happen. That 17th game was a major point of contention among players before they narrowly voted to approve the CBA last year. But since owners were granted that right, and since they used it as an enticement in their latest round of TV deals, this week's vote has seemed like a foregone conclusion. Look, they've been talking about it for years. It was bound to happen sooner or later. It's in the CBA. Players can complain about it, but it's right there. It's in the, it's in the CBA. And... Before we start with the whole, ah, suck it up, it's just one more game nonsense, just remember that this is a job to these guys, right? This is a business. This is their work. Imagine if you walked into work one day and your boss said, yeah, you got to have to work more. And I'd have to imagine that At your job, you don't go through the physical hell that these players go through throughout the course of a 16-game season. Former Ravens receiver Torrey Smith tweeted, 17 games in the NFL is great for money, but they are going to have to adjust practices and what a regular offseason looks like. Dudes were already falling apart at 16 or playing 16. As a whole, this is great, but adjustments have to be made. That was Torrey Smith. George Atala, 
the NFL Players Association's Assistant Executive Director of External Affairs, responded to Smith's tweet saying, What's up, brother? Uh, there will be automatic changes to the off-season and in-season workout schedules as a result. So, in Italian, that means we can look for three preseason games now instead of four. Assuming the NFL actually gets to play a preseason this year. And that's not a terrible thing. Preseason games suck. They're virtually pointless, especially for the guys who already made the team. I would not care if they cut it to three preseason games. Wouldn't miss it at all. Some teams will get four if they play in the Hall of Fame games. So you have two teams playing four preseason, everybody else playing three. I got no problem with that whatsoever. So if they go to 17, I also saw a, uh, what's the word? Not recommendation, but I guess just an idea thrown out there. That if you're going to a 17-week regular season, make it 19 weeks and throw in a second bye week. Because right now you got 16 games. It's a 17-week season with a bye. You go to 17 games, make it a 19-week season, and you give each team two buys throughout the season. That is a possibility. So shorter preseason, one extra bye week, maybe, but, man, that, that makes the season really long, doesn't it? I mean, it's already long. But a 19-week regular season? And they're talking about keeping you know the playoffs expanded and whatnot. It, it's, we don't want it to be like the NBA or the NHL where the season lasts eight months out of the year. But it's possible. And they've already you know made major restrictions on practices as far as how many days they can practice in pads, how many days you can hit in practice. There can't be much room left to, to fix that. But we knew it was coming. The players knew it was coming. Everybody's known this has been coming for a while. Again, they've been playing 16 games since 1978. That's the longest gap between any change in schedule they've ever had. And it looks like it's going to happen. And we're not, you know, we're not dumb. We're not stupid. If you follow sports long enough, you understand like ESPN's uh, Phil Yates is going to say, we all know uh, why this change is coming. Let's not kid ourselves. We know what the upside of this is. This means an extra week of revenue, both in terms of television and eventually tickets and everything else that comes with more football being played. The NFL wants to continue to not just grow its business, but remain the dominant sport in the United States for a long, long time. A 17th game gets you there. Now, are players thrilled about it? The idea that you're going to have an extra week of work, they want to be compensated appropriately. I think that's going to be one of those moving target conversations that we continue to discuss more and more is how are the players adequately compensated for their additional weeks of work? There will only be three preseason games. It's not that your body goes through the same physical toll at all in a preseason game uh, as it does in a in an additional regular season game. But as we know, one of the things that players have had a hard time with, you know, in recent years is preseason game. I mean, when was the last time Aaron Rodgers took a preseason snap? And, and I don't know the specific answer. I just know that he hasn't played a lot of snaps in what feels like forever in the preseason. So that's a small trade-off here, but I expect there to be, there, there will be uh, just one bye week for the upcoming season. 
All right, so he thinks there will be one by a week. It could be two. If this is approved, if it goes into effect this season, which it looks like it may, make a note of this. The final game of the season for the Steelers, that 17th extra game, will be against Seattle. The Ravens' final game, that 17th game, will be against the Rams. And Washington's final game will be against Buffalo. So that will do neither of those three teams any favors to play that extra game. Seattle, the Rams, and the Bills. Thanks for nothing. All right, back to wrap things up. Stick around. Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Before we get out of here, let's take a look at the player who delivered. Brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about the Suns? Devin Booker. DB went for 35 points, six rebounds, three assists. In Phoenix's 101-97 win over the Hornets in Charlotte in overtime. So Devin Booker, our player who delivered, uh, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. NFL note, in case you missed this one. <laughs> Steeler, former Steeler Tyson Alualu is now, well, he's not a former anymore. Alu-Alu signed a free agent deal with Jacksonville not too long ago. However, he never made it to Jacksonville because he tested positive for COVID-19. So he couldn't go to Jacksonville to officially sign the deal. During his 10 days of quarantine, he uh, thought about it and said, you know what? I built my dream home in Pittsburgh. I got my kids in Pittsburgh schools. I'm staying. So he told Jacksonville, uh, thanks, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm staying in Pittsburgh. So Tyson Alualu, who began his career in Jacksonville before going to Pittsburgh, he is now still uh, a Pittsburgh Steeler. All right, we don't talk soccer very much on this show because I, I know very little about it. But I thought this was worth mentioning. The United States uh, men's national team will not be going to the Olympics after losing to Honduras 2-1 to one in CONCACAF qualifying yesterday in Mexico. This means the U.S. men will miss an Olympic tournament for the third straight time. And ESPN's uh, Taylor Twellman, he uh, he kind of called the guys out. Another big moment for the United States Soccer Federation on the men's side, and another moment to question whether or not they know what they're doing. The United States men's Olympic team has failed to qualify four of the last five Olympics. That is pathetic to say the least. And I get it, you were missing your best players because of FIFA rules, and some of the players weren't in season, but all of that noise... That's just excuses. The roster of players that were in Mexico should have qualified. It's simple as that. But to everyone saying to me that the Olympics aren't that important for the men, are you sure about that? Because the last time I checked, the 2016 gold medal game was Brazil versus Germany. 
Odd how those two countries know how to win, isn't it? Do you know why they know how to win? Because they play in every single tournament that they can play in. And it's something you learn. And you can't learn when you don't qualify. The fact that there are excuses for a team trying to qualify out of CONCACAF is laughable to me. Especially one that has every resource at their disposal. So I'll continue the conversation about developmental players and the growth of the American player in Europe. I get it. It's very important. Especially for the men's full team to reach the highest level. But I've got one question for U.S. soccer. What does the scoreboard say? Do you know what it says? You've missed the last World Cup and three Olympics on the men's side. So until the scoreboard changes, the narrative continues. Despite all the talk, the United States men can't do it when it counts. Taylor Twelman getting involved. Going in on the USMNT. Saying you're not getting the job done. I don't know anything about soccer. It's just... I found it interesting. That's why I play clips like that from people who know what they're talking about. It is kind of embarrassing, is it not? I mean, we think as Americans, we're supposed to be good at everything when it comes to sports. We're supposed to be at least decent. So it's hard to fathom. It's hard to wrap my mind around them not making the Olympics the last three. The last three? One? Okay. They've missed what? A World Cup and the last three Olympics. That's that's uh, That's pretty sad. Even somebody who doesn't follow soccer like me knows that. Uh, A couple more things before we go. Memphis won the NIT yesterday. Penny Hardaway squad beat uh, Mississippi State. And Hardaway says this is just the start of something big at Memphis. And Indiana hired Mike Woodson. A six-year deal to be their new head coach. Mike Woodson, who was an assistant with the Knicks. He spent most of his career in the NBA. Now, Woodson played for Indiana from 76 to 80. He was part of that undefeated team in 76. Head coach of the Hawks, with the Knicks. Is that really really the guy? And nothing against Mike Woodson, but is that really the name that's going to attract recruits? Is that really Mike Woodson? And you kind of get what they're trying to do because, you know, Michigan hired Jawan Howard, you know, a guy who played and went there. But there's a little difference between Jawan Howard and Mike Woodson. Don't you think? As far as appeal, recruit appeal, right? Jawan Howard is part of the Fab Five. Still, I guess, in, in somewhat recent memory, Woodson played for Indiana back, like I said, late 70s. I don't know. Is that is that where Indiana basketball is right now? I mean, seriously. I can't imagine Mike Woodson was there. Again, nothing against Mike Woodson. I can't imagine that he was their first choice. Don't forget, Elite Eight, two games tonight, both on this very station. Oregon State and Houston playing for the Midwest region title. That game at 7-15. Then an old Southwest Conference matchup. Arkansas and Baylor. The South Region Final. Coverage starts from Westwood 1 at 7 o'clock. Tune in tonight for all the action. Of course, we'll talk about those games tomorrow morning and talk about tomorrow night's games 
as we get closer to the Final Four. Have a great day. Stay safe. See you back here tomorrow, 7 a.m. sharp. This is the Morning Rush. I am Tony C, and I am done. Ah, see ya!